Good morning. I should clarify, well, let me first of all be, no, the third time to say Happy Father's Day, I guess, here. And I should clarify one thing. I, I do have two grown children, one still at home and one is in Australia. Reminds me when my kids first went away to school at Multnomah and someone said, well, I was telling someone at church, wow, you know, empty nesters, this is wonderful. And I remember an older parent came along and said, oh, they'll be back. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we enjoy our, our kids. Uh, I really like the series. Uh, in fact, I've enjoyed every series. You've got a wonderful pastoral staff, and uh, I've enjoyed this series, Think Again. And I was thinking, I should have preached it in my first church. My first church was on the southeast side of Portland in uh, the Lentz District area, commonly known as Felony Flats. And uh, it was an older CB church. It was my first really introduction to being a senior pastor. And I think it was about the third week. I was out in the foyer, and I asked one of the ushers, I said, so uh, where... Where are the restrooms? And he said, well, if you just go down to the end of the foyer there, you'll see the set of stairs go up and then take a left and then take a right and you'll see them on the left. And I, I remember I said, well, shouldn't we have signs? And he, his response, I remember, I always remembered. He said, well, we know where they are. Uh, I thought... Have I come here to be a caretaker? What is this about? So I was thinking if I had done this series there, I might have retitled it simply, Think. Uh, But most of this series has been Think Again. And as we have followed this, it's largely been uh, taken out of the Sermon on the Mount, which when you think about it, is the classic sermon in Scripture on Think Again, isn't it? Jesus comes along and says, you have heard, but what? But I say, yeah, think again. This is uh, what you need to think when it comes to anger or adultery or divorce or revenge or prayer or possessions. He's given the right side of language to a world that's upside down. That's why we need to think again because we do have things often upside down. And here in our text this morning, we're going to talk about worry. As, as uh, Pastor Dave mentioned, it really comes on the heels of what he preached a few weeks or a couple weeks ago on possessions. And we tend to think it's good. I mean, there's something good about possessions, though the warning is to not let them possess you. But we can collect laptops and blue jeans and power tools and build Costco rooms to store our Costco-sized quantities. And Jesus says, however, what? Think again. And here in this text, it might seem good to worry, might even seem necessary to worry. On the surface of it, I find, perhaps like some of you, that worry can be something of a friend, keeps me from going to bed before I've checked the locks on the door, make sure my stuff is protected, moves me to call a doctor that I otherwise might not call, keeps me awake until the kids are home. Anxiousness pushes me to pray, work harder at preparing a message. What if my message bores the eyeballs right out of the lids? 
preachers worry about those things. If it's not necessary, at least it's natural. It's natural for me to worry, and I'm sure it's natural for you. And in fact, we know in Scripture we're not alone. The Bible is full of fuss budgets, worry warts. If you look in Scripture all the way back to Adam and Eve, they were worrying, weren't they? About coming one tree too short. There's Sarah, Sarah who worried about what? Would she ever have a child? Isaac and Rebekah, we know they worried all the time about their sons. Moses worried that he might not be able to speak before Pharaoh. Or the psalmists who seemed to always be worrying that God might not come through. Or Jonah who worried about what? These God-forsaken people might repent. And we worry. In fact, social scientists, I read this somewhere, describe our age as the most worried culture that has ever lived. Now, I don't know how they come up with that, but this is what they say. And the news is always, have you noticed inciting us to freak about something, hardly a day goes by, that we aren't told that the sky might fall in, or at least the climate will kill us in 10 years if we don't change things. I noticed yesterday, getting my Time magazine, this was the cover story. Our sinking planet with the head of the United Nations sinking in water. Worry is all around us. It's a story of rising seas and fleeing residents and disappearing villages. And I start thinking, my gosh, will I sink? The news is always telling us about terrorists or earthquakes or tsunamis that might strike next. We worry about, well, the list could go on, right? Health care, unpaid bills, unresolved conflicts, not to mention the possibility of a zombie invasion. <laughs> and this is all around us. Moms worry if their sons are going to grow up to be men of God. Fathers worry over the choices their daughters are making. My question is, what do you worry about? What do you worry about? I'm guessing, and I think it's a pretty safe guess, that all of us can immediately go to at least one thing that maybe keeps us up at night or it wakes us up in the middle of the night. The next physical, the possible disease, if college will grant admission, will there be jobs after college? Will the publisher say yes? Worry if you've been a good father? For some of us, yes, worry can be traced to chemical imbalances and other things, but for most of us, if we're honest, it's a spiritual imbalance. And to this kind of worry, the kind that mistrusts God, Jesus has some words. So let me read this as you follow along in Matthew chapter 6. He says, that I, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor 
was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own now it's here Jesus provides a spiritual override of sort to challenges. He tells us to stop worrying about life, life itself, a word that encompasses everything. Which at first, when I read this anyway, might seem a bit odd, this command. Does it seem odd to you? Maybe it might even be a bit offensive. I'm wondering if the audience Jesus spoke to much have found these might have found these words strange. I mean, these were not aristocrats given to fox hunting and debutante balls. These were people who were destitute, living under Roman oppression, so beaten down they were on the verge of vanishing. How can you say, don't worry? Or tell Dave whose wife is battling cancer, or Amy whose brother is dealing with ALS, or Jim who can't find work, or Sue whose life has unraveled into a dark cloud of loss. How can you be not a person who worries? It sounds a bit like jazz vocalist Bobby McFerrin's 80s hit. Remember that? Don't worry, be happy. I mean, Jesus' words on the surface anyway seem, can we say this, a bit irresponsible. But Jesus is using what we call imperatival language. He's telling us that anxiety is not a friend at all. He's telling us it's not an option. It's not a choice. It's not the way God intends us to live, the kind of life anyway that's supposed to flourish. Now, Jesus could have thrown a few herbal stress balls, but instead what he does in this passage, as you look a little bit more carefully, is he builds, a, he builds an argument. He is giving us at least three crippling things, and here's, here's what they are. First thing he starts with in verse 25, 26, is to tell us that worry is distorting. Isn't life more, Jesus is asking us to say, yeah, life is a lot more than these things. But you're getting things out of perspective, out of proportion. You're becoming preoccupied with basic necessities. You're living for the latest Chico ads. You're worrying about, will there be brunch seating? You're possessed by possessions. And you've let them define your security and identity. And what Jesus is saying is, be careful. This is what worry does. It begins to distort. Things get out of shape. They steal away our hearts. They enslave us. We find ourselves, when we worry, beginning to major on the minors. We begin to miss what's important. 
We can worry about the what ifs and miss the what is. Now, he starts there, worry distorts, but where he spends the bulk of his argument is to say, this is what worry does, it, it demeans. It demeans God. It degrades God, it raises doubts. When God looks into a worrisome heart, what is it he sees? I'm going to guess he sees several things. He sees this that worry is saying to God that he is unable, that he's inadequate, that he's not up to the task, that he's overwhelmed by the demands, that he can't really provide. But verse 26 says, think again. Notice again here in the text, he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Open your eyes, Jesus is saying. Well, look around. And what do you see? Well, one thing you don't see is birds who are hyperventilating. <laughs> They're not obsessing over the next worm meal. They're busy scavenging, yes. They're building nests. But they don't seem to be in a panic over the Creator's ability to provide for them. Your challenges, Jesus is saying, doesn't challenge God. After all, this is the God who Colossians 1.17 says, holds all things together. All God has to do is let go. But he's the one that keeps our lives together. It's his nature to do this. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in all the fullness of him, says Psalm 115, verse 3. It's one of my favorite verses. It just tells me whatever God wills to do, he does. So why are you worrying? Or Ephesians 3, 20, 21. God is what? Able to do what we ask, beyond what we ask, beyond what we imagine. This is how great he is. If we stop for a moment to contemplate his greatness, our imagination would stand in numb silence. That's what Paul is saying. If he can create us, he can provide for us. So worry, what does it do? It demeans God. It says he's unable, but... But worse, it says, God is uncaring. Worry is that lingering fear that maybe my issues don't matter to him. But again, Jesus says in this passage, think again, verse 26. Are you not much more valuable than they? Does it escape us every now and then to forget that Jesus is over the moon for you and me. Is that true? It's getting worried, Dave. You do understand that, don't you? And maybe that's just it. We, maybe you're a little tentative because we, we need to be reminded that we are... We are loved perfectly by someone who could not love us more. B 
because he already loves us infinitely. I like what Paul said when he said, if he did not spare his son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also grant to us everything? This is Paul simply saying, if God loves us so much to die for us, well then, could we ever ask for something that's too much? It wouldn't make any sense. Or Ephesians 3.19 tells us God has a love that is so wide and so long and so high and deep that it, it surpasses knowledge. I don't understand that. But I do understand this. Why would I ever wonder about God's love, God's care? Worry says, I'm not sure. Worry also says God is unwilling. Worry tends to assume God is, well, he's a little reluctant. He's a grudging giver. He, he sort of sits stoically by while we pour our hearts out to him. But verses 28 and 29 again say, right? We got it by now. Think again. Notice what he says here. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. God loves to care for all of his creation. Loves to lavish on plants a beauty, a craftsman care that surpasses the best artists. The most amazing fashion designers far beyond Dior or Armani or Versace or Solomon could ever imagine. And Jesus is saying, if God puts this much detail and attention and energy painting the petals on a rose, which is here today and then in the pile tomorrow, well, how much more is he willing to lavish his love on those he made in his own image? A lot more. Finally, worry says God is unaware. Worry tends to wonder, is God really informed? I mean, maybe he gets sidetracked. There are 7.7 billion people on this planet. I mean, how does he stay current? And Jesus again says, think again, verse 32, tells us that God knows all of our needs. Tells us that God is too knowledgeable to ever be uninformed. Isn't that great? Too knowledgeable to what? To ever be uninformed. Too aware to learn a thing. No dilemma can confuse him. No event can surprise him. Nothing is news to God. He knows our needs more than we know our needs. Our requests before we even are aware to ask them. And he knows what's best. I just had my second book published, and I'm really grateful, and I'm working away on my third one. But I'm going to make a confession. I'm worried. I can't find a publisher yet. And I find that uh, almost on a daily basis, I come to God to inform him. <laughs> just in case... Uh, you have overlooked it, or maybe you didn't get the message the first time. And Jesus, in texts like this, says, stop it. 
And so he repeats himself, in fact, three times in this text. Stop worrying, verse 31. Stop worrying, it distorts. It distorts, it it makes books so important when Jesus says there's a lot more things that are important. It demeans God. And here's the final thing. Worry, what does it do? It, it distorts, it demeans, it diminishes. To those who think worry adds anything to your life, notice again what Jesus says in his think again. When you look at verse 27, he says here, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour or cubit or piece to your life? What he's saying here is that worry doesn't add anything to the thought that I need to worry about this. Jesus says it's not contributing anything. In fact, it's not only not adding, it's subtracting. It's creating its own instability. The only thing worry increases is our smallness. It produces nothing. I've never had a doctor say, John, given your present state, you need to worry more. (laughs) I've never had someone say, wow, you look great. It must be all that worrying you do. I've never read any self-help books with the title, How Worry Got Me to the Top, The Seven Habits of Highly Worried People. Girl, wash your face and stop believing the lies about why worry is bad for you. You just can't find them. And lots of statements underscore the point. Mark Twain once said, worry is paying a debt you don't owe. It's as productive, really, let's face it, as shoveling smoke. It puts us, as one put it, on a hellish road with lots of side trails that lead to dead ends. Or maybe my favorite here, worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts drain. In other words, give your life to worry and you'll become insane. It's craziness. But more than our lives that are diminished, Worry diminishes our spiritual witness. And I noticed this in just a passing phrase in verse 32 when he says, for the pagans run after all of these things. Why did Jesus say that? For the pagans run after all of these things. And and maybe he's saying something like this. Worry, if you're a follower of Christ and you've experienced his love and his grace and his mercy... Worry ought not to be part of your life, but it makes complete sense for those who are not interested in God. In the pagan culture here, where people followed capricious gods who, well, you just never know which side of the bed he wakes up on, this is the world they lived in. Or people who only want to turn to themselves. Or people who hope in luck or fate. Jesus, in a sense, is saying good luck when it comes to worry because that's what you will do. But Jesus is saying it's different, right? It's different with us. When we are out there in the world, hopefully as salt and light, it should be that when people look at us, they say something like, 
why isn't this person worried? But the reality is sometimes I'm not sure we're that much different than the world. And so Jesus is saying, stop your worrying. It diminishes you. It diminishes your witness. So what are we to do? We are clearly in this passage told to resist. Three times he tells us to stop. It may be our most justified sin, but it's still sin. With everything you have and with every prayer, throw the weight of your worry upon God is what he's saying. And then reorient. Stop something is replaced with do something. Verse 33 again, but seek first what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Shift your habits, he's saying, your energies. Give your best thought and care to the kingdom of God. Instead of pacing the driveway or stewing in your chair or walking around with your shoulders up to your ears, go after God and give yourself to what he's doing. And then finally, he says here in this text, relax. Verse 34, some take it as maybe an add-on later on, but I think this is how Jesus ends it. I think he comes back in a very practical way. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is Jesus saying, are you worried? Defer it to tomorrow. And then when you wake up, what? Defer it to tomorrow. That's how we should live. Just defer it and keep doing it. So I was thinking here this morning, this is Father's Day, and I was thinking a little bit, well, I would have wanted to preach a sermon to men, but Pastor Dave said, no, you have to stay with the series. (laughs) But Ashley, I got to thinking, This is a great Father's Day text. One of the greatest gifts I think a father can give to his kids is a life devoid of worry. A worrisome father, you know what a worrisome father creates? An insecure home. My father, I love my father, but he worried all the time. And I can't tell you that it added any value to our home. A father whose life is not defined by worry, who rests in the goodness of God, in the greatness of God, and the wisdom of God is a strength to his kids, right? It's a strength to his home. And Lord knows we need such men today, especially in this crazy world. We're coming now to the table. What a great day to come to the table. Come to the table to stare at this, that God loves us this much. So as you take the cup and the bread, just pause for a moment. Maybe you might need to say, God, I, I need to stop worrying. Why 
in light of what you've done for me, why, why would I ever worry? So if you'll come in just a moment after I pray and take the elements as you're ready, um, let me first of all pray. God, I'm thinking this morning, I'm so grateful that I'm not preaching the text commanding us to worry. That would be so awful. And I'm thankful I'm preaching the text and we're hearing the text commanding us to not worry because of who you are. Not just because it seems right. And we thank you for the, the bread and the cup that just underline how deeply you love us and you have our lives in your hands and you know the end from the beginning and we don't need to worry for a second and we give thanks for these elements and this truth in Jesus' name, amen.